listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 18. Turn with me to our Father's Word, Acts chapter 18. But I want to put Acts chapter 18 into a context. And the context is the first chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, as you're turning to Acts 18. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, the disciples and Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're looking at Jesus and they're looking at his ministry and they're looking at the idea of the Messiah through a lens of the Old Testament, the idea of the king and the kingdom and the subjects. That's what they're looking at this through. That's how they're viewing Jesus. So they ask him this question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so there is a kingdom coming, the millennial kingdom that's coming. Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about? He affirms the teaching that's presented in the Old Testament. And then what we see in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 with this whole idea of the reign and the rule of Jesus on earth. So he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so the great commission that we find in Matthew chapter 28 and then the reiteration of it, the recasting of it, the detail being provided here in Acts chapter 1, that's what sets the stage for all of the book of Acts as history is being written. While we're reading the book of Acts, we have to understand that history is being written. And the rest of the New Testament, what we read in the New Testament is the consequence of much of what we're reading about here in the book of Acts. And so the beauty of it is that here we are in the 21st century and we're going through the book of Acts recording what took place in the first century and we understand that we are recipients, beneficiaries of what we're actually reading about. History is being written right now in your life and in mine. We have a great, rich, amazing heritage. And now we're ready to look at the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 1. After this, after Paul was preaching and teaching in Athens. We talked about that in our last time together. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, written by the apostle Paul. The book of 1 Corinthians was written in Ephesus. And we're going to read about Ephesus here in just a moment. So he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. That's southwest of the Black Sea, all right? That's Northeast Asia Minor, southwest of the Black Sea, if you can get that in your mind. 
He met Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy. That's going to be really important with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We're seeing persecution even here, again, against the Jewish people. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. The practice of Jewish parents is that they would teach their child a trade, how to work with their hands. Elsewhere, Paul says, make it your ambition to work with your hands. And he was a tent maker. So he was supporting himself in part by making tents. And he was coming alongside of Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. That's what's being presented here. Verse four. And he reasoned in the synagogue Every Sabbath, again, Paul's practice, he's always looking for the Jew. If we look at the book of Romans, and we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul is demonstrating the truth of what's presented in Romans chapter one. He's demonstrating that truth by every time he goes to a new area. What's the first thing he does? He looks for the synagogue. He's looking for the people who have already been taught the Old Testament scriptures. And mostly there are Jews in the synagogue, but there are also God-fearing Greeks who were in the synagogue. It's important to understand. The God-fearing Greeks, that's what it means when it's presented in the scriptures. And so Paul is looking for the opportunities to present Jesus as the Messiah to connect the dots for them again and again and again. His theology is that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is for the Jewish people. God's not through with the Jews at all. In fact, he's put the Jews first in his eschatological, prophetic eschatology, a fancy word for end times, Okay, that's what the word eschatology means, the study of latter things, end times things, latter days. So God has put the Jew first in his prophetic plan. That's why he sent Jesus, who was born of a Jewish woman, into the world to die for the Jewish people. And so Paul is demonstrating again and again and again the same thing that we see on the day of Pentecost where it was on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell upon the God-fearing Jewish people who believed in Jesus as their Messiah. And more than 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. So what we understand here in the book of Acts is that it's an incredibly Jewish book. We understand that anti-Semitism is incredibly against the heart, the mission of Almighty God. To be an anti-Semite is to be somebody who is at odds with the plan and the purpose of God. Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. This is one of the reasons why the Egyptians were judged when the Jews crossed through the Red Sea and the Egyptians were judged. God could not let them escape easily because otherwise God wouldn't mean what he says, wouldn't say what he means. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so it's very important to understand that if you're against the Jewish people, you're really against the heartbeat of Almighty God. You're against the agenda of Almighty God. And so what we're seeing Paul as a Pharisee 
trained under the law, right? Trained to be a leader of the Pharisees, the equivalent of the, think of him as being the potential president of the leading theological school of his day. So it means in the scriptures when he says, I was excelling in Judaism among my peers. He was set to take the place of being the leader of all the Jewish teachers, the Pharisees. That's who God is using here in the Apostle Paul. It's important to understand that. And what is his practice? He goes to the synagogues again and again, and he teaches, and he connects the dots and helps them understand, you know that Messiah that you've been taught about here in the synagogue that we Jewish people have been taught about? Well, I got knocked on my bum one day as I was on my way to Damascus, and that Messiah spoke to me, a Pharisee. And that's when I began to understand that Jesus is the spoken one, the one spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. Let me connect the dots for you and help you understand that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and ascended, as we just looked at in Acts chapter 1, he is the promised Jewish Messiah. That's why he goes to the synagogue. It's incredibly important to understand the strategy of Paul because it's the strategy of God, all right? Verse five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, remember Paul had left them behind for a while, but Paul asked for them in Acts chapter 17. Paul was occupied with the Lord, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He stops being a tent maker, and then he preoccupies himself now with exclusively preaching and teaching the word of God. So there's a principle and a practice here in scripture for those of us who are not pastors, those of us who are not teachers, that it's good to be able to give your pastor, your teacher, teacher, the ability to make a living through preaching and teaching the word of God so that they can dedicate themselves toward doing what we're doing right now. It's not the ideal thing in the big plan of God to have somebody who's continually bivocational. It might be good for a season and a startup time, but eventually that bivocational thing, you know, the Africans say it this way, you can't have one foot in one canoe and one foot in another. The idea is to get both feet in the same canoe and to pay somebody to devote themselves to the full-time preaching and teaching of God's word because it does something qualitatively. It enables them to devote themselves to prayer, seeking the Lord, preaching and teaching the word of God that should come as an overflow. Remember, you're only as good a Bible teacher, you're only as good of a pastor in proportion to your own experience with Jesus. Same thing with an elder, same thing with a deacon. You can't give somebody something that you don't have for yourself. You can't teach somebody something about a God you don't know yourself. And so this is what we see here as a principle of one of several instances found in the scriptures, but the principle of having a worker who's worthy of their wage. So Paul turns his back on tent making so he can turn his full-time attention to a life that's devoted to God and the preaching and teaching of God's word. So thank you to those of you who make that possible, whether it's here at this church or whether it's here at other churches. Thank you for making that possible. Everybody who's on staff is here on staff because of your sacrificial giving. When you give to the Lord, those gifts get filtered through to the lives of real people so that they can take care of their families, take care of their needs here, and then be able to dedicate themselves to the full-time ministry of God's word. Verse six, when they opposed him, those who didn't receive the message, and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, 
also to the Gentile. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, seems to be given his last name, or at least his middle name, to indicate a distinction between Titus, who's already been involved in this story, a worshiper of God. So we have a Gentile who is said to be a worshiper of God. This is a Jewish synagogue attender. That's an example. That's what it means. What does it mean to be a worshiper of God? This is a Gentile who was attending the synagogue. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, who is somebody who Paul baptizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. We read about that. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, look at the strategy of what's happening here. That's a pretty big deal that the ruler of the synagogue accepts Jesus as his Messiah. That's huge. See the history that's unfolding here. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So the stage is now set when you open up the Bible and you read about First and Second Corinthians. This is the history behind the books that we're reading here in the Bible. And so again, we say the Bible is such a book that man couldn't write if he would, wouldn't write if he could. There's no Bible, no religious book that's ever been written that reflects the way that the Bible was written, the way the Bible unfolds, and the, the way that the Bible fits in. All the pieces of the puzzle fit in with each other. So I want you to make the connection and understand that we're reading about history. History is being written. History was yet to be written in 55 AD. Just a few years later, Paul would write 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And here we are today with a rich heritage, we are part of this story. We're able to read today and be encouraged and challenged with the very word of God as a direct result of the Holy Spirit's work through Paul and his companions. Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing and encouraging and inspiring. Okay, verse nine, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Remember, Paul is said earlier in Acts 13 to be among the teachers and the prophets. He has a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. We see again and again persecution, opposition, and then we see an affirmation and God authenticating the message of the gospel. And here's what they're saying in verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They're distorting the truth. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Again, please put to rest this idea that if I follow Jesus, if I accept and embrace the gospel, it's going to lead to a life of comfort and convenience. Many Americans have been wrongly brainwashed into thinking that that is the gospel. And many megachurch pastors are guilty of propagating that lie. And many small church pastors are guilty of propagating that lie. And the reason why that lie is propagated is because people are members of the nighttime Bible reading society. They read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. 
They might as well be doing that. If you get yourself away from the Bible, you'll come up with all kinds of nonsense and gobbledygook that you'll think is true when it's an absolute lie. The truth is that if you follow Jesus and you give your life to him, you'll have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding and with it, persecution as well. But better to be persecuted now and enter into eternal life than to be comfortable now and enter into an eternity apart from the presence and the goodness and the glory of God. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and they took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with them Priscilla and Aquila. We're starting to see Priscilla's name being used first. Maybe it was a phonetic issue or a poetic issue that it just kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Or maybe, imagine this, men, maybe there was a woman who actually was more spiritual in their relationship than the husband. That wouldn't be the first time, would it? where maybe Priscilla is blazing that trail and pulling Aquila behind her. Come on, honey, let's get going. Let's follow Jesus. Now, in your own marriage relationship, God has created you equal in character, equal in importance. You have different roles and different responsibilities, but you're both equally important to Almighty God. So this idea that the man is superior to the woman or by contrast, that the woman is superior to the man is just not biblical. They're equally important to Almighty God. They have different functions, and you need to work together as a team. Today, one of the most detrimental things that's happening in the United States of America, all around the world, and it's infiltrated itself into the church, is that men and women are at odds with each other, fighting each other in the household for who's going to have the upper hand. And that doesn't do anybody any good. You need to stop seeing each other as competitors and you need to start seeing each other as complementers. You complete each other. You complete each other, and you need to work together for the will, plan, and purpose, and ultimately the glory of Almighty God. And many of us right there, that's a fundamental change that needs to happen in our relationship, in our families. Stop competing against each other. It's not you versus your wife. It's not the wife versus the husband. It's both of you versus the flesh. It's both of you versus the world. It's both of you versus the devil. It's both of you together for the kingdom and the glory of Almighty God, working together to advance the agenda of Jesus. Does that make sense? You'll find that your whole family relationship will change dramatically if you stop seeing each other as competitors and you start seeing each other as complementers. Let the world engage in that ridiculous debate, whether it's feminism, whether it's machoism. And that's, that's what people who aren't saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, as the book of Acts is the reminder for us again of what spiritual living looks like. And that's the way people behave when they don't have Jesus as their Savior. That's the way people behave when they're not walking in fullness of the Holy Spirit, when they're not living a surrendered life. So you can be saved, but not be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit because you're not surrendered to Jesus. Let the world debate and argue about these ridiculously divisive issues. As for me and my house, as for you and your house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Let's serve the Lord. And let's pull our families together. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus. That's where Paul's going to write his letter to 1 Corinthians. He gets to Ephesus. What is he doing? The heart of a pastor, the heart of an apostle, the heart of a man of God, the heart of a woman of God, for that matter. The heart of somebody who's been called into the ministry. His heart is being called back to the people and the places where he just went. 
and he wants to write a follow-up letter to the Corinthians, and he does it from Ephesus. He writes multiple letters to the Corinthians, love letters, and he has to write letters of rebuke to them because he addresses them as saints, but yet they were incredibly carnal. You can read that for yourself if you read First and Second Corinthians, and it's a great reminder for us about how to treat a sinning saint. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue, notice the synagogue again, the synagogue again, and reasoned with the Jews. By the way, Ephesus, the leading commercial city in that whole area, strategically important. They had an idol there, a, a false god that was there, the Artemis, that we'll talk about that and read about that a little bit later on. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. What scriptures? Remember, the New Testament's not yet written, so this means he was familiar, well-versed in the law, the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He didn't have the whole picture. And the implication that's presented here is that water baptism is not a little thing, it's a big thing. It's important in your walk with Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned it right here and he would not have been instructed about water baptism. Don't downplay the importance of water baptism in your own spiritual journey. If you're not yet baptized into the name of Jesus, you need to take that plunge. Literally speaking, you need to take that plunge. And you might have been baptized as an infant. I was baptized as an infant being raised Roman Catholic. I can tell you with all certainty, I don't remember being baptized. And if you don't remember being baptized because you were too young when you were baptized, it's a good indication that the rich, meaningful practice, the meaningful ritual that baptism is intended to be is something that you need to experience because every instance that we see in the book of Acts of somebody being baptized, they get saved, they believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and they immediately or eventually identify with him through water baptism, all right? It's an important thing. It's an important thing. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately, which most definitely would have involved teaching about identifying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through, guess what? Water baptism. It's not a little side issue. It's a major issue. God has given us that rich symbolism to identify with the washing away of all of our sins through that water that symbolizes the purity that God provides for us when we identify in the finished work of Jesus. All right? Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ or the Messiah was Jesus. So this guy was like an attorney 
pleading the case for Christ, using the scriptures to, to appeal to the Jewish people. And God's hand is upon Apollos. And it's a great reminder for you and for me that in order to be effective in evangelism, you've got to be immersed in the word of God. Your ability to lead people to the feet of Jesus is proportional to being in the word of God. This is why we value here. This is why I value personally preaching and teaching through the word of God verse by verse. Preaching and teaching through the word of God verse by verse. This is why I encourage you all the time to have a set apart time every day where you can open up the word of God, look at the scriptures, study the scriptures, meditate on them, and then ask God for the opportunity to share what you're reading, share what you're learning with your neighbor, with your coworkers, with your family members. And you know, if you do that, if you're dedicated with a steady diet of God's word, reading the word, studying the word of God, putting it into practice. If you're doing that and really getting it into your life, if you are, as one of our pastors says, preeding the word. How many of you can remember Pastor Joe talking about preeding the word, reading through the word of God, praying through the word of God? If you're doing that, then you're greatly increasing your chances of meeting somebody and then taking the word of God that you've been preeding that you've been meditating on, chewing on, and being able to point them to the Jesus who is presented continually in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And so what Apollos is doing is he's using, he's drawing from the reservoir of God's word that he had been studying and reading and meditating on, and then God actually was using that for evangelistic purposes, and he becomes this invincible, formidable force under the leading of the Holy Spirit as a tool for evangelism, as an effective evangelist for Jesus. That same thing can happen in your life as well. Same thing can happen in your life as well. Now, let's back it up here as we've just finished chapter 18, and let's go into more detail about a couple of things. I want to talk a little bit about this vow that Paul makes. Let's look at verse 18, and then I also want to talk about the significance of Italy, because I'm a full-blooded Italian. My last name, Palicelli. My middle name, Anthony. I don't use Palicelli because I'm tired of trying to tell people how to pronounce it and how to spell it. Can you imagine that? And so I'm a full-blooded Italian, so that has some significance for me, but we'll, we'll save that for last, okay? Let's go to this vow thing first, verse 18. Easy to remember, 1818, 18, Acts 1818. 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and when they took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Sencrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Uh, most of us would look at that and say, cut his hair, he's under a vow? What does that mean? And then you read elsewhere, in scripture that Jesus says, don't make a vow. So what is it? Don't make a vow. Paul makes a vow. He's a Pharisee. Is he confused? I'm confused. What does all this mean? It's okay to make a vow when the vow is, Lord, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is going to serve you. All right? You don't make a vow that says, never again will I ever, as soon as you say that, you don't make a vow based on an uh, image. You don't bring Jesus into it and say, I swear in the name of Jesus, your yes needs to be a yes. Your no needs to be a no. You need to be a person of integrity. But when you stop and think about it, the whole Christian life is a vow. The whole Christian life is a vow. Not that you're going to live a sinless life from this point on. That's not the vow that you make. But to the best of your ability, you're going to submit to the Holy Spirit. You're going to submit to Jesus. You're going to surrender your life and trust God with the consequences. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You accept Jesus, his identity, being God in the flesh. You accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And being a Christian doesn't mean from this point forward, I'll never sin again. That's not the vow that you're making because you will sin. Not that you want to sin, not that being a Christian is a license for sin, but Jesus died for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. So when you give your life to Christ, you're not saying, never again will I ever sin. That's my vow. No, that's works. You're setting yourself up for failure for that. Your vow is to adore and to worship Jesus. From this point forward, Jesus is going to be in the driver's seat. I'm going to ride shotgun, if not in the back seat. I'm going to let him take me where he wants to take me. My life is going to revolve around Jesus, and I'm going to let God take me as a work in progress. I'm going to be a person who is set apart as holy the moment I give my life to Christ, and then I'm going to intentionally set my life apart as holy sanctification so that I follow Jesus. That's what you do when you give your life to Christ. It's not a vow to never sin again. It's a vow to get out of the driver's seat and to no longer be in it for me, myself, and I, that now Jesus is going to be the Lord of my life, the God of my life. There will be no other gods before him. And when the convicting work of the Holy Spirit comes, we agree with God about what he already knows. That's what humility is. We agree with God about what he already knows. That's what humility is. Humility is agreeing with God about the truth. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to you about an area or areas of your life, you don't wrestle with him. You don't fight with him. You say, you're right, Lord. Should have used the money for this, but I didn't. Please forgive me. Shouldn't have said that. Should have held my tongue. Remember, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, self-control. Shouldn't have watched that, shouldn't have thought that, shouldn't have listened to that, shouldn't have written that, etc. And the great promise of Almighty God, 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, sanctification, if we confess our sins, Christians, if we Christians confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it's about. You learning anything so far today? Are you learning anything? You getting built up a little bit, getting encouraged? So the question here is that I want to raise is what is this vow that Paul, that leads Paul to then cut his hair, right? He gets a haircut. What is that vow? Some speculate that, well, maybe this has to deal with verse 10, where it says, where God speaks to him and says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Some have speculated that it's a vow of thanks. Paul was then committing himself to a vow of thanks. Maybe that's true. It seems a little bit vague. I can't totally wrap my head around that, but that's one of the views. Another view is that maybe it was a vow that, that was similar to what the Greek sailors would do. They would ask God for safety and uh, commit themselves to God for safety and security, and they would dedicate themselves to walk the straight and narrow in exchange for God protecting them. Well, maybe that was the case. Probably not the case because we don't see very often, if at all, we see contextually Paul saying in chapter 17, hey, I see you're very religious people. You even have a God to, a, even have a statue, an idol to an unknown God. That's about as far as Paul goes when it comes to using the Greek culture as an inroad. We don't see Paul adopting Greek practice as a means of spirituality. So I'm not so sure that that's exactly what it is, that Paul is now acting like a Greek sailor and taking a vow along those lines. We have to understand who Paul is. He's a Pharisee, 
right? Well-schooled in the Old Testament law. And so this may very well be some form of a Nazarite vow, which we find in Numbers chapter 6. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. Now, the Nazarite vow would have required it to be finished in Jerusalem, and we know that Paul is not in Jerusalem when he has his hair cut, but maybe this is a means of Paul demonstrating some type of a Nazarite vow. He's come, remember, from Athens, from a city where there are many idols. He's, being, uh, he's experiencing persecution after persecution. He's been flogged. He's been jailed. And so maybe he has made a vow of setting himself apart to the Lord in, an, in a special way, which would not have been unfamiliar for a Jew, especially a Pharisee, would have been familiar with the Nazarite vow. Whenever they were going to do a special task, whenever they were going on a special assignment, you could take a Nazarite vow. And the idea is you wouldn't shave. Some of you men love that idea. You can rock that beard, guys. Didn't shave, didn't cut his hair until the vow was over, until the special assignment was over. So here we look at Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, notice the Jews, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. See, the Jews were already separated, but this is a deeper journey, okay? It's a deeper commitment to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation or consecration, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother. Look how serious it is. For brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. The hair is a symbol. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord in a special way. All right, then we get down to verse 18. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So we know that this is not what Paul is doing. Could not be word for word, a literal Nazarite vow because he's not going back to the tent of meeting. He cuts his hair off at this particular place at uh, St. Crea. He had his hair cut off, but he is a Jew. He is a Pharisee, and he knew this principle of special consecration. In a similar way, you might decide for yourself that you're not going to eat a meal. You're not going to drink something. You're not going to do something. You're going to abstain from watching television. You're going to abstain from a smartphone because you realize it's dumbed you down. You're going to do something and you're going to make that kind of a dedicated commitment to the Lord for the purpose of going deeper in holiness, deeper in purity to the Lord. If your smartphone is dumbing you down, put it aside, put it to death. The Bible says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the sinful nature. If you have a problem with eating bad foods, wrong foods, too much food. You can make a vow and you can say, Lord, because this is coming between me and you, I want to go deeper with you and be especially consecrated to you. And so it seems that Paul, his Judaism, his Jewish roots are influencing him. You know, you can take the Pharisee out of the prophet, but you can't necessarily take the law 
out of the prophet. Paul is a Jew, dyed in the wool. And so the principle behind the Nazarite vow, being in the 21st century here, the principle behind the Nazarite vow is something that we can apply today. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was probably doing. The principle, not being legalistic about it, but the principle was, hey, I'm in the land of idols. I'm on a special assignment from God. I want to be especially used by God. I want to be especially useful to God. And so I'm going to abstain and set myself apart and set my heart, my, my mind, my intentions, my will before Almighty God. That's something you can do this week. Does that make sense? That makes sense? So here we understand the historicity here of how the New Testament is tied in with the Old Testament. And we, we need to understand again and again the context in which these things are happening and the players who are part of this drama. The Pharisee Paul, well-versed in the Old Testament, going to the synagogues and understanding the principles from scripture that are timeless for you and for me today. Now, we'll end with this. I promised that I would go to the idea of the Italians, all right? I have to do that being an Italian myself, being full-blooded, and here's where we go to, I think, one of the most exciting parts of this whole passage, Acts chapter 18, the first two verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now, here's the question. Can anything good come out of Italy? Can anything good come out of Italy? Now, be careful how you answer that, because I still have some connections. <laughs> I can ask that question because I'm full-blooded Italian, all right? But we ask this question, can anything good come out of Italy? And the answer is, of course. What we're seeing here in the book of Acts is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We're seeing the gospel now go into the known world. And maybe Aquila and Priscilla, they were Jews who maybe were saved on the day of Pentecost and went back to Italy. Imagine the gospel going to Italy, right? And we're seeing God strategically pouring out his spirit on the Jewish people and then sending them back to their hometowns where... What was happening? The stage was being set for what would come down the road here with Paul and his traveling companions. They would meet some of these people and the churches would be strengthened and built up. I mean, how does Apollos come to know the truth about the gospel? Why is it that he needs to hear more from Aquila and Priscilla? These people are hearing portions of the gospel and then God is sending his servant, his messenger to connect the dots. And this is what we're seeing here. And so, of course, God can use, of course, God can use somebody who comes from Italy. God can use people from all different parts of the world. That's what the gospel is about. It's about God using fallen, broken, imperfect, sin-filled, sin-stained people and washing them clean through faith in the person and the works of Jesus. That's the good news. That's why it's great news. Now, today, I'm fitted with a very special outfit. My feet today are fitted with an, an unusual pair of shoes. They fit me perfectly. And if you would have asked me if I would have worn these shoes 20 years ago, I would have said, fat chance, you'll never get me into those. These are not my shoes. They are now. But at one time, they were my father's shoes. And I wear them every once in a while as a great reminder for me 
God knew from eternity past that these shoes would be a perfect fit for me. For over 13 years, I was estranged from my father. He did not know Jesus as his savior and was actually quite opposed to Jesus as his savior. And that was one of the reasons why we didn't have any contact for over 13 years. And you've heard me tell that story, at least in part, when my father was on his deathbed, I had the privilege of leading my father to the feet of Jesus. We had a great relationship for the last nine days of his life. As I began to see the work of the Holy Spirit transform a man at 79 years of age into a Christ follower. And I'm here today wearing my father's shoes to tell you and to remind you that nobody is beyond reach. There is nobody who is so far from God that the Holy Spirit cannot reach out to them and remove the blindness from their eyes and the hardness from their heart, no matter how long they've wandered, no matter how long they've been in rebellion against him, there is nobody who is beyond the reach of Almighty God. And today, I wear with a smile on my face and warmth in my heart knowing these shoes, I wear them knowing that one day I will see my father more alive than he was ever in his 79 years of life because of the grace of Almighty God. And I bet you know somebody in your life that you might be tempted to write off, that you might be tempted to think, that person's beyond reach. Don't you dare put somebody beyond reach when they are totally within the reach of Almighty God. What if God had written off the Apostle Paul, who was persecuting the church, throwing people in prison, and breathing out murderous threats? We might not be reading about the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul as the center figure in that book. We wouldn't be reading the book of Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the book of Titus, First and Second Timothy. Nobody's beyond reach. What about Matt Lauer? If you've been watching the news, you've read, you've seen reports of Matt Lauer and what he did. Is, is a guy like Matt Lauer beyond reach? Only if Matt Lauer doesn't repent. Is what Matt Lauer did terrible and dastardly and dark and devilish? Does it have tentacles that have reached into the lives of other people? Of course, absolutely horrendous. Matt Lauer is in need of Jesus Christ as his Savior and God. He needs to experience the love of God that surpasses human intellectual insight. And we need to pray for the people who have been abused or allegedly abused or victimized. Of course, we need to do that. But we need to be careful as followers of Jesus that we don't preach the gospel of grace and then throw stones instead. We need to be really, really careful about that. Matt Lauer, Matt, you might be listening right now for all I know. Maybe you'll see this video clip. Nothing that you've done is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of the sins of anybody and everybody whose life you might have touched in a negative way. There is no such thing as an unpardonable sin except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that you can read about for yourself in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, any sin that an individual commits will be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We need to understand what that is briefly so that we can understand that a guy like Matt Lauer can be forgiven if he repents. There's no, no sin that you're guilty of, that anybody's guilty of, that is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but you have to repent. In Matthew chapter 12 is the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is for a limited time. 
to a limited audience. Very important to understand. Committed only by the Pharisees. Only the Pharisees could have committed it. Why? Because the primary job of the Pharisee was to identify the, the Messiah when he showed up on the scene. That was the whole purpose of studying the law and teaching the nation of Israel. To help the Jewish people identify the Messiah when he shows up. The Messiah did show up, Jesus. And what did the Pharisees do? They committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The leaders of the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah when they should have recognized him, and they attributed his works to the works of Satan. You can't repeat that. I can't repeat that because you're not a Pharisee, neither am I. We don't function on behalf of the nation of Israel. The Pharisees had a role as the leaders of the nation of Israel where they were supposed to identify the Messiah when he came on the scene. Instead of identifying him, they committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the only unpardonable, unforgivable sin because it was for a limited group of people, the Pharisees, for a limited, a limited time then and there while they witnessed and observed with their own eyes the ministry of Jesus, heard with their own ears the ministry of Jesus. And so, whether you're Matt Lauer or whether you're my father or in the shoes of my father, there is no sin bigger than the grace of God. There is no sin that is unforgivable unless you choose to not be forgiven unless you choose to not repent. And whatever decision you make in this life will have consequences in the life to come. So choose wisely about your opinion of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. It has consequences for all eternity. Repent now and receive his grace. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.